0: Uh, good evening, everyone. I um, just, first just wanted to thank everybody for coming. I think most people here know me, but I'm Jonathan Ziering. I'm the Skan Rosh Beit Midrash at the Yeshiva University of in Beit Midrash of And we're a uh, community resource for, uh, for Torah education. And one of the things we focus on is, uh, is Israel and Zionism. So we thought that we'd try something different and team up with, uh, with Eli's. And thank you to Eli's and especially to Yossi for organizing this to try to celebrate uh, Israel in a different way, because this year we've, uh, we've devoted much of our programming to what we've called Celebrating 70, to celebrating the 70th uh, birthday of Israel. and We thought a tribute to uh, Israeli cuisine, updated Israeli cuisine, would be a, a nice sort of spin on, uh, on Celebrating 70. So uh, just as an introduction tonight, I want to talk a bit about food. So... Uh, So, you know, who would have imagined a 100 years ago that uh, that sushi would replace gefilte fish as the uh, quintessential Jewish food? Or that hummus would no longer be made only of chickpeas, but uh, edamame and whatever is the healthiest thing these days and found in every supermarket. And yet, with the proliferation of kosher cuisine, incorporating the best of every culture we come in contact with, this is the norm in our communities. And I remember growing up that one of the, uh, the rabbis in Staten Island that's close to my father, Moshe Meir Weiss, he bemoaned this. And he said, you know, when he was uh, growing up, even people who were assimilated, who weren't halachic, who weren't close to, to Torah, they were, uh, they were gastronomic Jews. Right? They may not have kept kosher, but they kept kosher style. And now, even the most committed Jews, we don't think twice about indulging in the uh, the newest fads. But, you know, it strikes me that this isn't a sign of weakness or something to be bemoaned, but a sign of strength. Anthropologists note that it's particularly uh, immigrants who try to maintain gastronomic purity. Right, they leave their home country, and when they come to a new country, so they eat the traditional foods from the country they, were, they grew up in because they want to maintain their identity. But people who stay in their home country have no qualms about experimenting with uh, with new foods and non-ethnic foods because their culture is strong. So they don't need food to bolster their identity. And in Tanakh we see this as well. In Sefer Daniel, we encounter the first group of the exiles from Yehudah, Daniel, Hanania, Mishal, Azariah, who are taken to a Nebuchadnezzar to be officers in his court. And they refuse to eat the Padbagh HaMelech, the food that the king gave to his servants. Now, while some of the commentaries understand that the food was not kosher, the Gemara assumes the food was kosher, but Daniel recognizing that he was in Galut, that he was in exile, initiated the first round of uh, decrees against non-Jewish, not non-kosher, but non-Jewish food, because facing the specter of 70 years in exile, and knowing that he would have to actively foster his Jewish identity in this foreign world, he decided that Jews should only eat Jewish food, so to speak. But tonight, as I mentioned, we celebrate a different 70 years. Not the 70 years of Galut, where Daniel had to dig his heels in and only eat Jewish food, but the 70 years of a return to the state of Israel, where, thank God, our culture is strong. Our identity is strong. We have a thriving, a thriving country. And we don't need to only eat what it was considered the classic Israeli or Middle Eastern recipes, to hold on to our culture. We're strong enough uh, to experiment. And that's what we celebrate tonight. Yossi, when he pitched this idea to us, said he wanted to take classic Israeli foods and then update them and give them a new spin. But that ability to not stick with that which was traditional, but to experiment with new things is really, I think, the greatest celebration we could have of Israel that... Expression of confidence that we have a state, we have a culture, we have an identity, and therefore we don't need food or old, old classic foods to maintain our identity, we can experiment and through that expect our con- express our confidence that we are Jewish, we have an Israeli state, no matter what we eat. So enjoy the, uh, the dishes. This is my second night here, so I know it'll be a, a fun evening, but enjoy uh, throughout, the, throughout the night. We'll try to keep our divrei uh, Torah short through the evening um, to put a little Divrace, bit of a Torah spin falafel on the food. Is that-
1: the national food of Israel is one that has caused an international outcry. In 2008, the Lebanese government claimed that we had stolen their cultural products. They applied to the EU trade regulator for the exclusive right to market food products called falafel in Europe. Palestinian writers like Rashid Khalidi decry our cultural appropriation of the food of their parents and grandparents. What underlies these claims? Aside from animosity, there may be something more profound at play. Foods can take on deep symbolic meaning in our lives. They have the power to evoke strong emotional responses. The foods of our childhood bring us back to the comfort and safety of home. This is why these dishes are called comfort food. Foods can take on religious symbolism as well. Rabbi Shimon Gershon Rosenberg, known as Rav Shagar, describes an experience he had outside of a bakery in Israel. Someone walked out of the bakery with a fresh challah and proceeded to tear it apart and eat standing on the street. Rab Shagar describes his shock. For him, challah had special religious significance. It was the bread of Shabbat, eaten in a holy way as part of the sanctification of the day. It even tasted different than bread from the rest of the week. How could this person violate a challah by eating it so crudely? We find the sensitivity to the symbolism of food encoded into halacha as well. On Pesach, we will eat matzah. Matzah is a food whose symbolism is quite complex. On the one hand, the Torah describes it as lechem oni, the bread of affliction, which we were forced to eat as slaves in Egypt. On the other hand, as is noted in the Haggadah, the matzah reminds us of the haste with which we were freed from Egypt, without time for the dough to rise. Matzah symbolizes our transition from slavery to freedom. Given the strong emotional connection to foods, perhaps we can understand better why everyone is getting so worked up about falafel. It happens to be, by the way, that no one has a direct claim on falafels. They are most likely to have emerged from Egypt and spread throughout the Middle East, becoming a regional food. The popularization of falafel in Israel likely started with Yemenite Jews who served the falafel balls in a pita. Everyone has the right to their own connection with this particular food. The question that remains then is, is what does falafel mean to us as Jews celebrating the foods of modern Israel? The answer is likely to be very personal, but perhaps we can suggest the following. Journalist Verid Gutman notes that the falafel balls are not the only thing in an Israeli falafel sandwich that Jews brought back with them from their time outside of Israel. The modern sandwich also includes sauerkraut from Germany, fried eggplant from Iraq, and french fries from America, among other additions. The result is that the falafel symbolizes the end of exile, the reunification of the Jewish people from disparate lands and cultures to become one people, building our own culture. The falafel thus becomes something beyond, something new, which is greater than the sum of its cultural ingredients. This image of rebirth typifies the state of Israel and maybe the reason why the falafel has become international. Big
2: salmon and a spicy green tomatillo shakshuka topped with a crusty avocado toast point. So in her book, The uh, The Foods of Today, Joe Nathan reports that in 1930, Shimon Agranat, who would go on to become Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, wrote a letter to his aunt and uncle in Chicago, and he described, he said, I had my eighth successive egg meal during my three-day journey through the AMEC. Nathan goes on to say the most popular egg dish in Israel is likely shakshuka, a word which originally means a mixture. And as author Lior Cantor suggests, it likely became popular because the combination of egg and vegetables was affordable and hearty. So our third course with its shakshuka, highlights a central truth about diet, which is that national cuisine is driven by cost, as the population looks for foods that they can pay for and that will fill them up. And it's an important truth for Judaism to recognize because so much of Jewish life, as Yaron said before, involves food. Hamintash and matzah, dairy for shavuos, foods with special messages for Rosh Hashanah, wine or grape juice and challah for for Shabbos, gefilte fish and cholent and so on. So, you can tell I'm the Ashkenazi, but... (laughs) What happens when economics clash with Jewish custom and law? And history shows that economics wins. The Talmud teaches, God does not want us to go broke for the sake of ritual. And so in 17th century Moravia, there was a particular problem where the fish merchants were jacking up the price for fish on Fridays because they knew the Jews wanted to buy fish for Shabbos. So Rabbi Menachem the Tzermach Tzedek, faced down the fish merchants by ordering a ban on fish for Shabbos. Same thing reported by Rabbi Avram Gambiner, the Magan Avram, in 17th century Poland. Same thing with Rabbi Yehuda Ayash in 18th century Algeria, and so on. The forces that led Jewish communities to opt for shakshuka also altered our ritual diet based on what we could afford. Now, I know at this point, everyone starts to think about the cost of Pesach food, right, and the cost of kosher meats. And maybe one day there would be a ban on certain foods if we actually believed our communities would follow it. But certainly, our future generations are not going to see Pesach pasta and fine meats as the hallmark cuisine of Judaism. The shakshukas are the ones that will survive. spinach, potato, parva, course. cheddar, cheese, borekas on a pickled beetroot lemon hummus. So in 1938, Rabbi ben Nuziel, who was then chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, eventually would, be, would become the Sephardi chief rabbi, was asked a question about a shul which had Jewish immigrants from various countries. They had all come in with their own minhagim, their own customs, and Sukkot was coming. And it's time to shake the love. And this one shakes it this way, and then clockwise, and the other one goes counterclockwise, one turns each direction, one doesn't turn each direction, and the question became, what do we do? Should we have everybody unite, and just do one thing, or let everybody keep their customs? And Rabbi UCL's answer was... Everybody should do the same thing. Everybody should be unified, low going go to do it. You're not supposed to divide yourself up among you know, the different Jewish populations. We're all one nation. That was his position. Fast forward 25 years. 1963. Rabbi Shlomo Goran tries to create what's called Nusach Achid. A unified custom, a unified Sidur, a unified prayer book For the Israel Defense Force, such that every soldier will pray in the exact same way. And it's part of his philosophy that Jews should see themselves as one nation. Well, with great respect for the Torah's desired unity, and certainly for Rabbi Uziel, and certainly for Rav Um I have to point out that as of 2018, they've lost this battle. Um, Jews continue to observe the customs that they grew up with, the customs that they brought to their new lands, and Jews continue to pray with their ancestral sidur, whether it's the one that the shul is using or not. And this is reflected in our fourth course as well. The centerpiece is borekas. Note, borekas is both the singular and the plural. The, um, the, the, this food, is a food of Turkish origin. It's centuries old, with many references in Jewish literature. Jewish law has addressed the question of what blessing to recite on it. Mysticism within Judaism has discussed the meaning of having a core food that's wrapped up in an external layer. But it has a parallel food among Eastern European Jews, which is... the knish right, the knish the origins of the knish and its name are greatly debated some say it's from the late middle ages in Poland and the Ukraine others trace knish back to kisnin which is an old term in Jewish law for a bread that's baked with fillings and may be linked to pashtida which actually going back to the Talmud was the ancestor of the kugel of uh, of today the person who said kugel over there is not wrong so both barekis and knishes are foods of convenience. Basically, as I saw one writer describe them, a handheld casserole. And like our prayers and our customs, both are beloved to the cultures in which they developed, and both arrived in Israel. But tell me, which one is the dominant one in Israel today? Barekas. Clearly barekas. Unquestionably, barekas hold the vast majority of the Israeli market. A friend of mine wrote a blog post ten years ago titled, There Are No Knishes in Israel. But A recent article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz disagrees, saying the Knish lives in Israel. You can always count on Haaretz to be contrarian. They say the Knish lives in Israel. There are still delis which will serve knishes because old customs die hard and old cuisine may die even harder. And Barakis may be Rabbi Goren's envisioned Nusach Achid, his unified text but there are still holdout delis who serve the Kish and there are still Jews who will wave the lolov as their ancestors did and may we always hold on to our Torah as powerfully um, as okay, we hold so on, on to so just our very briefly
0: prunes. while you enjoy your main the uh, six hour braised short ribs on parsley, roasted garlic, Israeli couscous, risotto topped with apricot, medjool date, prune and red wine reduction. Wow, I can't believe I got that. Out, um, um, So, you know, I started with talking about the, uh, the strength that it takes for a culture to say we're going to embrace uh, new foods. Um, but the truth is that when you embrace a new food culture, you can do that in two ways. Or when you embrace any new culture, you can do that in two ways. You can choose to uh, abandon the notion of an ethnic food culture entirely, just accepting that we're strong enough to do things new and forget about the old. But the most beautiful way of updating a, a culture is melding it with the, with the old and creating a new ethnic masterpiece which imbues old ingredients with new character. Now, in this case, where you're taking classic Israeli fruit, whether it be the dates or the grapes and the wine reduction, or stereotypical Israeli fruits like couscous, and incorporating into this exquisite chorus, you see the latter. And we know in halacha that the fruits of of Israel are inherently important. Tanakh emphasizes that um, the land is represented by its agricultural potential. The spies brought the fruit to show the land, even if they ended up rejecting the land. But still, that was what they chose to, to represent it. Halachically, if you have multiple fruits on the table, some of which are from the shiv'ar aminim, the seven species, you make the bracha, you make the blessing on those food on those uh, fruit first. So I think it's beautiful that even as we're experimenting with new foods, we don't just abandon Israeli foods and is and foods of Eretz Israel, but instead we use the raw materials of classic Israeli cuisine and and update them. And that attests to the fact that creativity does not need to be, nor should it be, in a vacuum. And it's in that spirit, it's that spirit that has really served Israel well for its 70 years. Finding ways of getting drinking water from its salty water, making the desert bloom, and all the other ways that we've tapped into the potential of Israel have shown us just how much blessing God has given us in the land of Israel
3: of the ribs with the f- sweet fruits and the wine to cook it together to take something raw product and to make it a special food a yummy food in Hebrew we call it Tam the taste of heaven what is the meaning of Tam we have the story in the Midrash about Tonsrofus and Rabbi Akiva Torun come comes to Rabbi Akiva and ask him, Which are the greater works? Hashem, the works of Hashem, or the work of human? Rabbi Akiva answers him, Of course, the work of human. And then, says Torun Then why do you circumcise? And Rabbi Akiva gives him in one hand grain. And in the other bread says, Look, this is the deeds of Hashem. And this is the deeds of human. And of course the bread, the deeds of human, it's better, nicer. The do be akiva. If it's true, then why Hashem is not burn people circumcised and Rabbi Akiva answered him look Hashem give Am Yisrael the mitzvot to refine them and the question is why does Rabbi Akiva use the sample of grain and bread I think the answer is in the Midrash that Rabbi Meir bring his opinion that the tree of knowledge was grain he explained that in the past the grain was very big tree as the cedar of the Lebanon because the sin, the green tea become a grass therefore we can understand why the Gemara Iktubot says that in the future, in the redemption the grain going to be a gentry and in the same subject Hashem give the punishment by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread up to now everything was ready for eating from now on you need to work hard to prepare food Aram Moshe El Sheikh, the student of Rabbi Yosef Karo says that today the fixing of the sin of Adam Arishon, the tree of knowledge is to take the raw product and make it treat to be a partner to the creation therefore when we make special food, treat, and we bless, and we say, different Torah, we strive, get to the perfection, and the sweetness, as was in heaven. And, Bauch Hashem, tonight, we have Torah, we have good food, we have a bracha, therefore, every bite, that you eat, from this delicious, this delicious food, it's mamash tamganed, the taste of heaven. now the dessert is krembo the word krembo it's cream and bo it's inside him the krembo in Israel is substitute to ice cream in the winter every winter the Israelis eat 50 million krembo even though it's only a very short time in the winter. And usually you can get a Crembo only in the winter. As a a seasonal food, the question arises, should we recite She'echiyanu on the first Crembo of the year? The Talmud teaches us that we say Shaikhyanu for a new fruit in the moment when I feel the joy when I take a bite from the fruit. We do it in Rosh Hashanah in the second day, and also some do it in Tubishvat. According to the Alakha in the Mishnah if you forgot to say Shaikhyanu in the first time that you ate the new fruit, and in the second time, you still feel the joy from the new fruit. Therefore, you can say From this, we can learn that the reason for mikash is the joy that I feel. The Talmud of warn us that a Jew will be held account by Hashem if he refuses to enjoy from the sweet things that he see in the world that renew every year and praise Hashem for it then what about the Simcha, the joy for the Krembo and the answer is that we don't say Sheyichiyanum for the Krembo the reason, that Birkat Sheyichiyanum it's not only for the joy of having a seasonal food it is about the renewal of the land that brings us through, through the new fruit, that symbolizes the renewal of the world. The kevo can be very sweet and, and tasty. And usually, we can find only in the winter. But still, it does not symbolize the renewal of the land. But without the Brikat we still, when we eat the crumble, to let us be grateful for the opportunity to enjoy life's small pleasure. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you very much for Yossi Azulai for organizing this evening. Shabbat Shalom.